You're listening to Dodge Movie Podcast. Your hosts are Christy and Mike Dodge, the founders of Dodge Media Productions. We produce films and podcasts, so this is a podcast about films. Join them as they share their passion for filmmaking. Welcome back, everybody, to the Dodge Movie Podcast. We are talking about episode 105, which is Crazy Stupid Love in this month of February, where we are still taking your guesses of the Guess the Theme contest. So far, we already have one correct guess. One. Send them in. I want to hear from Australia. We keep hitting their charts. So I know you guys are listening down there, and I would love to hear what you think the theme is for this month. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Guess, guess, guess. (laughs) Nice. Okay, we watched Crazy Stupid Love. Not for the first time, but on Amazon for $3.99. And this movie came out in 2011. The director is Glenn Fakara, who also directed I Love You, Philip Morris, and some episodes of This Is Us. It stars Steve Carell, Ryan Gosling, Julianne Moore, Emma Stone, Leo Tipton, Jonah Bobo, Marissa Tomei, Kevin Bacon, and Josh Groban. Was was this Groban's first film role? It was. Right. The DP was Andrew Dunn, who in 2009, he filmed Precious. And in 2012, he filmed Perks of Being a Wallflower and some episodes of Downton Abbey in 2022. Whoa. It makes sense that the director it did some episodes of This Is Us because this is written by Dan Fogelman. The screenplay for this film was featured in the 2010 Blacklist. Isn't Fogelman's wife in this? Yes. She is one of Ryan Gosling's dates in the bar. So kids, a great way to get into the acting business is to be married to the director. (laughs) This is true. The synopsis for this film is a middle-aged husband's life changes dramatically when his wife asks him for a divorce. He seeks to rediscover his manhood with the help of a newfound friend, Jacob, learning to pick up girls at a bar. The tagline is, well, there's three, I guess, or it's one separated. Let's see. This is crazy. This is stupid. Can you guess the last one? This is love. Whoa, very subtle. The filmmakers actually offered a free iPad on set to whoever came up with a title that was better than Crazy Stupid Love because... Nobody, I think, really liked it, but they couldn't come up with anything better. Which is amazing. I haven't given it much thought, but I got to feel like the screenwriter could probably come up with a decent title. Steve Carell has said that he hates the title of the film, stating that he couldn't imagine a group of college guys saying, five tickets to crazy, stupid love, please. Don't mean to disagree with Mr. Carell, but I don't think five college guys are going to see this film no matter what it's called. He thought it would be The Wingman. That might get him. That's a better title, but I think it could be like Naked Boobies and they still wouldn't go. This is just not a college guy film with the exception of myself when I was college age, but just don't think it's going to be that popular. Let's see if it follows suit. What is our pickup line? Oh, I'm so full. Who says that? That's Corral in the restaurant. They'd gone out on the world's least romantic date. I thought watching it again, it's very prophetic because <laughs> she says... I just can't decide what I want. Yeah, it does kind of, there there is some interweaving there. One of the things I did complain about, to be fair, with the cinematography is they focus a lot on shoes starting out. And it's to set up the sight gag of his new balances and later Ryan Gosling's character, whose name is Annoying Guy, 
what's his name? Cal? Cal is Steve Carell's character. Jacob is. Jacob. Yeah. Jacob then throws those very comfortable new balances over the railing onto the crowd below. Technically, probably assault. But so there's that opening shot that, that sets up that whole discussion. And then, of course, the son, Robbie, is reading the Scarlet Letter in school. And so a lot of that kind of weaves back together. But I just want to say for the writing that the first time I saw this film, I did not catch, I didn't see coming who Nana was, right? I thought they were referring to uh, their grandma. Exactly. You mentioned the feet and I thought it was really cute though. And kind of, you know, we talk about show don't tell a lot here is other people's feet were like touching one another and being flirty. Right. And so we're panning under all the tables and then we see their feet strictly, you know, next to their chairs. And then, like you said, the sensible New Balance shoes. So, I I mean, it it definitely kind of told us who they were even before we tilt up to their faces. When I, I was in college, people tried to suggest to me wearing New Balance or the equivalent with khakis, chinos, what have you. And I, I even back then didn't think that look really worked. So I, I think it's interesting. And I mentioned this too, kind of veering a bit into costuming, that in the beginning of the film, they put him in a lot of very oversized clothing. And you could argue that that's for comfort. And then he's in the, you know, sausage casing sweaters later in the film. So it makes some degree of sense showing that this is a character who's gotten comfortable. Right. Right. I have in my notes under costuming, Mike is bothered by all of the shoes. I really am. And that's another reason I don't think five college guys are going to go see the film. I I don't think (laughs) dudes pay attention to shoes like that. (laughs) I guess the universal signal for like dull guy is the white tennis shoes. Because I had a friend who in our friend group, one of the ladies got a divorce and her new beau, one of my friends chastised he was wearing white tennis shoes. Right. And I didn't understand why that was so egregious, but maybe this is what she was referring to. Well, that friend is very critical of clothing and shoes in particular. (laughs) And I again return to, I I don't think most dudes, well, let's say straight dudes to be some sort of, but don't really think of shoes as anything except functional, literally nothing but. And, And so I find that humorous that people are making a description. That's like me criticizing her based on her tool choice, right? It's not a thing that she thinks much about. So there's nothing to be gained there. But I thought in this particular film that, okay, I could see where they're going. It kind of, I don't know if I would have made that choice, but I I see where they're going, right? I thought it was good cross-cutting because as the parents are having their dinner and then driving home while uh, Cal is distraught, (laughs) that his wife has just told him that she is leaving him for David Linhagen, whose name was said 19 times in the course of this film. <laughs> Linhagen? No, Lindhagen. Lindhagen. And then it's crosscut with the their son at home being babysat, and he has a crush on his babysitter and kind of what's going on at home. And so it sets up this kind of like tension going back and forth to the different scenes and Steve is just so distraught and she's just rambling on and then cut to the kids and the boy in his, is in his room taking care of some private business. It's a little private time. 
and the babysitter accidentally comes in. So it's just like this chaos on the road coming towards the chaos happening in the home. And I thought that was, you know, made for humor. Right. And we see there's a, a part where a picture frame gets broken and there it's the photo of Cal. And this sets up, I guess it would be, I don't know if you'd even call it a, a love triangle because it's almost like a, a love squiggly or, I mean, there are so many different arrows between people in this. In fact, some that are surprising that I, I think early on, yeah, in those first few minutes, they really establish kind of the stakes mm-hmm. of this. And I think it's also indicative of the relationship. I didn't catch this until the last time we watched it, that she tells him she wants a divorce in a crowded restaurant. Mm-hmm. But I've heard a lot of people do that because they don't want their partner to make a scene. Yeah, it's Weasley. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that is perfect, though. It shows kind of where she's at is that she's not able to talk about where she's at. And so she kind of pulls this manipulative trick of, hey, it's this quiet restaurant with candles. He won't make a scene, which he didn't. But then he pulls off what is perhaps one of the better stunts in Steve Carell's career, although I don't think he did it. But Cal takes the ladybird expedient of bailing out of a moving car. Yeah, it's pretty funny. It's very classic Steve Carell, I think. Mm-hmm. And in doing research for this episode, I never got that. I mean, this movie's been out since 2011, so spoiler alert. But I feel like this is, you know, we can talk about this <laughs> because I have in my notes that says Jacob is so mean to Cal. And you've always yes. expressed how you do not like Jacob's character not and so much so that you've bled your <laughs> feelings onto poor Ryan Gosling, who like, I was hate, just being an actor. I hate Bradley Cooper for yes. Wedding Crashers. Yes. Ryan Gosling really has a problem because of Crazy Stupid Love. Yes. So, but what I never really picked up on, but I saw it this time and then it was reinforced in the research I did, is Jacob thinks he has to be kind of a jerk to impress the girls or to get the girls. And he's trying to for lack of a better term right now, butch up, which I know that's maybe offensive. So I apologize, but I'm machismo up or, you know, he's trying to, he's trying to impart onto Cal what he thinks women want. And what ends up happening over the course of the movie is he ends up being more like Cal. And in doing so, he gets a more quality partner in Hannah, who, ironically, <laughs> the more he turns into her dad, Cal. Right. That's not, that, that's maybe not um, breaking new ground that she's attracted to her father. No, I'm but, not. I wasn't so much mentioning that, but Cal gets a little bit of a spine and he kind of gets a little more self-assured, which is on the path to where Jacob was. And I'm saying Jacob softens and comes becomes a little bit more like Cal. So they kind of in turning because maybe what Julianne Moore's character, Emily, wanted was a husband with a little bit more of like he she wanted to know that he would fight for her, that he would punch David Lindhagen. Right. Which I actually think is is a little problematic. I mean, I think it works in the film, but that that philosophy of I want you to fight for me is very strange given the messages to males, right? Oh, toxic masculinity. 
Well, what is more traditionally masculine than hitting your opponent over the head with a club, right? Uh, so that's a little odd, right? I have to say in that context. But no, the problem I had, I think your your assessment is probably more accurate because I'm a little colored by that character of Jacob. But he came across to me more as the pickup artist, morally bankrupt, just a horrible human being, basically a con artist with a penis. And that to me, it was a stretch that any amount of Cal rubbing off on Jacob would turn him into a decent human. And that's why I like the line where Cal says, I am never going to approve of you because I think that's accurate. Does he say that at the end in the backyard? I think it's in the bar when he's in the bar and Jacob comes in and he they hadn't talked for a while because they'd had the fight and everything. And then he's like, you know, I really, Jake's like, I really into your daughter, blah, blah, blah. And Cal says him, I will never approve of you. And I actually think that's that's true because Cal saw that pickup artist and that was what he thought he was, which of course is 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 just totally awesome. The screaming fight outside the school parent-teacher conference. I don't know if we've all had those screaming fights outside of parent-teacher conferences, but I think we all understand that sensation of you just lose your mind without really being aware of kind of the, the situation. And I love the direction of how all of the other parents were watching. And then the instance over, they all kind of like turn and disappear, like when you turn the lights on and the roaches disappear. Right. I think that was perfect human nature. Yeah. The other thing I loved about that scene, and it started back in the school. So Emily and Cal haven't spoken for quite a while, and they're meeting with their son's English teacher. And so out in the hallway. <laughs> who, who is his ninth lady. Right. That, that was key. <laughs> While they're out in the hallway, they're talking. And because yeah. there's been some distance, Cal starts to kind of say some things that you can tell are starting to move Emily. And she's starting to see him in a different light. And it feels like she's kind of softening that maybe you get a little bit of a spark yeah, yeah. that maybe there's going to be a reconciliation. Right, right. Hope for act three. Right. And so then we go into the classroom and it seems so he's kind of made some headway. And then it comes out that he's been dating the teacher. And then... Something happens. I can't remember. Oh, I I think so. Then that blows up and it spills out to out in front of the school. And based on some of the things that Cal is saying to Emily again, it starts to soften her a little bit. And so you're like, oh, okay, they're gonna they're gonna get through this. And then just as that happens, the, the teacher comes out and she says something else that just kind of like blows it up. And so it was just this great tension because it was like, are they, aren't they, are they, aren't they kind of back and forth? Because you're rooting. I feel like you're rooting for Cal and Emily to get back together. Absolutely. To me, Steve Carell's character, Cal, is kind of the sympathetic hero, which is interesting. And I, I I did like the way it was written and some of the dialogue such that I feel like if Dan Fogelman, did he write it? He wrote it, right? Yes. I feel like if he hasn't been through a divorce, he watched one because I feel like yeah. he captured it really perfectly, including lines which are not just funny, but to me felt very realistic where she says something like, I miss us. When did we stop being us? And he says, maybe when you screwed David Lindhagen, <laughs> which that line sounds not to, I mean, it is a funny line and Steve Carell delivered it very well, but it, it also feels very realistic to me. 
And the the thing that that set him off at the parent teacher conference is the teacher comes out, Marissa Tomei, and she says a line, something like I forget what it was, but it was some line that he used with his wife. But some you know romantic, you look like this, or I'm happy when I see you, or something like that. Being cute, the right amount of cute and the right amount of sexy, or, or something. something. Yeah, and. And then Julianne Moore looks at him and like, you told her that. Like, yeah. you basically, you shared this thing that was supposed to be between us. Yeah. And I feel like in both cases, you know, that, that was realistic that mm-hmm. what they were dealing with was they had each brought someone else into their relationship. So now it was kind of a foursome, a quadruple or whatever you would call it. And that to me felt kind of realistic in the way that it portrayed this couple going through a thing and also the impact on the family. I thought it was very realistic that Robbie, the son hated David Linhagen mm-hmm. as he would. And he gives him the death stare and David Linhagen's trying to like, Hey buddy. And he just wants nothing. And he says, and this is like a 38 minutes in, it's like near the end of or past act one, but he says is just so you know, she ends up back with my dad. <laughs> and I thought that was a really fun line that I, I, I bought from that, that actor's performance. I bought that line. It was maybe a little precocious. Mm-hmm. I don't know if a, a normal 13-year-old would say that. but I, I And I liked it for the audience mm-hmm. because it gives us hope. Like, oh, okay. Right. The line is delivered from Cal about Emily. She's the perfect combination of sexy and cute. So then Kate runs out, the teacher, and says, tell her she's the perfect combination of sexy and cute asshole (laughs) (laughs) and that's yeah it's it's heart-wrenching because you see on julianne moore's face emily's face the pain because that is something because the one thing that we i don't believe we've spoken to yet is these two were kind of like high school sweethearts and i think they deeply cared for one another but a pregnancy of two young people kind of push them into marriage. And so they've been together a long time. I think the, this is where I feel like Fogelman has intimate experience because it seems to me very much like they both lost or abdicated their ability to talk about their needs. That really what the arc is for these two characters to get back together is for both of them to be able to start communicating with each other authentically. I think you get so caught up in the kids and then, you know, she, we see Emily working now, whether she went back to work a while ago or recently, it probably just, you're right. If you don't focus on something and you kind of start to take it for granted, it can kind of slip away. Well, yeah, yeah, through a variety of of causes, right? You mentioned sometimes just kind of the uh, things that have to be done in life that they get out of control. I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact when we talk about working mothers that working fathers now are doing a lot more than just coming home to drink whiskey and smoke a pipe with, you know, soccer practice and all these different things. So I think they both could have gotten lost in their jobs, both, you know, outside the home as well as as a parent. I also think if you're not careful and not to say that, you know, watching movies is like a passive thing. We want everyone to watch more movies. But if you, you know, you you just come home and you zone out in front of the boob tube or whatever your numbing thing is, you can, if you're not careful, kind of atrophy as a person. And I think we saw that with them and that, you know, maybe is partly the kids, but they didn't, they didn't have that, that joie de vivre 
that fire. And that's kind of one of the things you're talking about that, that they both got back that maybe Emily got it back because she had this kind of, I guess the chase with David Lynn Hagen and, and uh, Cal got it back with the chase in the bars, you know, they, they found that. So that to me was again, really, I think very realistic to show two people that did care about each other that by not paying attention kind of steered off the road, right? Mm -hmm. Near the end, when Jacob can tell that he's really having feelings for Hannah, he calls Cal for advice. And so I liked that kind of what I was referring to, that the roles reversed. Mm -hmm. And then my other favorite under editing I have when... Jacob's explaining his big move, his dirty dancing lift. And and Hannah says, that would not work on me. And then just cut to the uh, s- <laughs> Yeah, exactly. The song from Dirty Dancing. Yeah. I just thought it's a really funny cut. Mm-hmm. And it's a little unrealistic, but it's also kind of humorous when the babysitter's mom gives the card to the dad. Ugh. And he sees the presumably naked photo of his daughter. And he just like bails out over the couch and people are, are shouting at everything. Again, he probably would have said something more, but it was fun to just go from that. He's watching baseball to holy crap, grab the keys. I'm going to beat the crap out of cattle. <laughs> right. The big reveal at the end in their backyard when we kind of see everybody come together. And that's when we realize that Jacob has been dating. Well, we know Jacob's been dating Hannah, but we realize that Nana that we've seen Cal and Emily and their kids talk about is actually Emma Stone's character. And so it's this big chaotic, oh my God, this is who you've been dating. And people are punching people and things are breaking and yeah, dogs the windmill are isn't going to survive. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a funny kind of crescendo of noise and reveal and and i thought it was kind of realistic that none of them were very good at fighting (laughs) not even david linhagen no no he he wasn't he was more of a dancer you could see he was a little (laughs) footloose i feel like we should have a david linhagen count on in the show note (laughs) right see if we can get to 19 maybe um if we say it a couple more times it'll show up in the tags that you know yeah (laughs) what's interesting is we've talked about this somewhat before is uh in a film set in the contemporary time period you have a choice as a filmmaker whether to tie it to specific things right do you make it timely or referential or do you have it just kind of be generic And one of the good gags in here is very specifically referential and I think will not work for many, many of our younger viewers because they've not seen Karate Kid 2. But in in the bar, Steve Carell says, you Miyagi'd me. And I think a lot of people know that Mr. Miyagi was the instructor in the Karate Kid. But there's a scene in the Karate Kid 2 where Pat Morita's character, Mr. Miyagi, could punch the bad guy, but instead he reaches out and honks his nose with the I stole your nose knuckle thing. And to me, that's a really fun thing for Jacob to do to Steve Carell, in part because Steve Carell's nose is somewhat part of his image. And also, but I, I, I don't think it it's going to play well if you haven't seen Karate Kid 2. Really? Yeah, I don't think. Well, it'll thanks look, to Cobra Kai. It'll just be weird. Oh, maybe so. Yeah, maybe Cobra <laughs> Kai did it, resurrected it for a new generation. So was there anything else about the film that you want to bring up? Well, one thing to to bring up is there is a lot of alcohol in this film. 
There's the Marissa Tomei character says she's sober, but the other characters drink a lot. And I do wonder if if other people notice that, if that's a thing. Who goes to bars anymore, right? It doesn't seem like it was the thing like, it once was, we'd go to the bar and have a gin fizz. Um, well, I don't know. I mean, we're not in that kind of, <laughs> I hope right. we're not, in the <laughs> hookup culture. I mean, that is how we met people. And so when you're young... I mean, isn't that... Maybe people do. It just, relative to other films, I felt like there was a lot of drinking hmm. in this one. Uh, in that sense, it felt like an old-timey 1930s, you know. Oh, yeah, give me another. But I thought it was interesting that throughout the whole film, they had this this bar as kind of a set, right? Yeah, I mentioned that it, between Cal's house, Jacob's house, and the bar, those were kind of like the main sets. Right. And they had a really neat bit of montage where Steve Carell was talking to these other girls in the in the bar and the camera was like panning. And as Carell would pan outside one side of the frame, he would pan in the other. And I don't know how they did that. I assume they put it on some kind of computer controlled thing so they could composite it later. But it was really kind of an interesting visual effect. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah. I, I I did mention that it, in my notes, it says Kate realistically never forgives Cal. Who's Kate? Kate's the teacher. Marissa oh, right. Tomei. So th- that actually m- felt very accurate to me because she established through dialogue and then later when she yelled at him that his honesty was the appeal. And then she had a night of passion. And she also seemed like somebody who maybe has been through a lot of boyfriends. And so I think right. she's probably learned when they show you who they are, cut them loose. So I think that's another reason why she wouldn't. Right. I, I think for her that when we hear that she's five years sober, it, the implication is that the sobriety came around a relationship, maybe a divorce or something. Right. That, that's certainly how I read that. And yeah, she's not really at that time in her life with her history going to put up with that crap. But I thought that was good because I think the Hollywood thing would have been for her to soften like, oh, OK, well, I get it. You really love your wife, but that's OK. No, she's going to shiv him. He needs to really watch right. himself. <laughs> I think she even kind of gives him an evil eye or whispers to somebody in the school, like kind of she she does something during the assembly. Right. Oh, she flipped him off during the assembly when he's giving his little speech. Right. Again, I just like completely, totally. I think that's accurate. Well-written character. One of the things I did notice kind of circling back to that bar, though, is I think it's realistically dark, right? Yet somehow Ryan Gosling and Steve Carell have beautiful catch lights in every shot. (laughs) Hmm. Okay. Not important right now. But from a kind of a composition standpoint, I really liked how when they were waiting for the parent-teacher conference... There's a chair on either side of the door. So they, they put this this natural divide in between them because they were the chairs were in front of lockers and then there's this gap for the door. I thought mm-hmm. that was well done to do that kind of two shot. Mm-hmm. And they were facing away from the door. So they weren't facing each other. They were both facing toward the camera. So you kind of see them twist and, and a little turn. So I thought that was really clever blocking, right? The way they did that. Yeah. So speaking of blocking, though, this was interesting. So Cal has moved into his uh, bachelor apartment and he's playing catch outside with Robbie. The first thing that bumped me was why sod? 
There's this giant palette of sod. And this is this is because when we watched it this time, I've always thought it was purposeful in all other viewings. But this time in my head, I made up the scenario (laughs) that when the location scout found this apartment complex, Uh the sod was just like like there was just grass there and they didn't really even notice it. And nobody bothered to tell them (laughs) that. Oh, let's not have the sod delivered that day because we're right. Somebody's going to be here filming that Either day. Either the day before or the day after. Right. And so they delivered the sod and they got there and there's not enough Teamsters that could have picked up that pallet and moved <laughs> it. And so they were like, screw it. We're just going to have to shoot it with this giant pallet of sod behind Steve Carell. Okay. I want to go one further. Okay. What I think would be a great scenario okay. is they had the, the location count found the apartment complex. They said, hey, we're going to have sod put in. He says, okay, could you wait a week so we can film? They shot the scene. It played horribly. And so Fogelman says, we got to do a pickup. Get Carell and the kid and we'll go shoot it. And they show up and now it's been torn up because the they thought, oh, it's the sod. So it's a pickup, which actually would support the other thing I noticed about this is when they're playing catch, the geometry doesn't work. That if you look where... Did they break the 180? No, but if you if you pay attention to where Steve Carell is throwing the ball and where the kid's standing, Carell's actually throwing it to a grip. You can tell the angle just doesn't match. Yeah, yeah. And, and so now I, of course, in my mind go to, like, well, why? Because the sod was in the way. The pallet... Maybe Steve a... was supposed to stand right where that sod was. <laughs> and because... I mean, I feel like there, nary, like there were one or two clipboards thrown down to the ground and people screaming oh. obscenities over this pallet of sod. Yeah, and I think I bet one of the clipboards was actually frisbeed over a roof. <laughs> they, people were mad. And so, no, that exactly makes sense. And so then they're like, okay, we, Steve's got to stand over here. And then he's like, okay, well, I'll throw it this way. And the DP said, no, now we can't see your face because your arm is going in front of it. And he said, well, where am I going to throw the ball? And they turn around, they're like, Bob, get over here. Oh, and even more so, I think out of the frame is three landscapers standing (laughs) around annoyed and waiting because they were like, we're supposed to show up and install this sod. And what is all this chaos around? I'm just here. Right. To and, install sod. Like, and, and so they're like, well, what am I supposed to do? And somebody says, well, hit the craft services table. So now I see them <laughs> and they have like a bag of chips yeah. and, and like a soda. And one guy's got the little cup of M&Ms and they're just chowing down. Okay, we're getting paid. Like, what do I care? Yeah. No, that, that, that totally. There's a story behind the sod. And if we uh, ever meet Steve yeah. Carell, we have to ask him this. Okay, I might need to make a short film about the sod. <laughs> it's all about the sod. It's all about the sod. <laughs> So that was one of my two notes for the set. The other thing is, and I mentioned this when we were, I think I even paused for this. I I just don't get the doors in Jacob's house. So the, the room where they do the dirty dancing lift, it's all windows. But if you pay attention, many of them are actually doors. They look to be about eight foot wide and not sliders. They're on hinges. Who would put that door in there? An eight foot wide glass door? You're going to kill somebody with that thing. I saw that too. And I've been watching enough home improvement shows and selling Sunset and Million Dollar Listing that the thing to do is to they, they make pocket doors, but they're like exterior doors. Right. So it's this open air concept. And I was looking and I went, no, 
everything is glass. There's no way that they could recess into a space. So yeah, you would just, I saw that too. And I thought, well, it was 2011. And maybe the idea is you would just open all of those doors. So it's still that concept, but I don't know. I was confused by it as well. When you open them, we have a swinging door incident where you're going (laughs) to clock the, the person delivering your margaritas. Right. I just well, had it, except for it's a window, so you'll see him coming, <laughs> right? And then it'll break and cut be in them the to way. shreds. But I had just had a great idea. Tell me, we get the Property Brothers on, and they get to pick an entire month of of movies, and we break down the houses in the Ooh, movies. Ooh, I like it. All right, yeah. Get Drew and Drew and Scott, or is that their last name? Uh, I think Scott's our last name. I think so. I feel bad that I don't know the other feller. A bonus, um, Zoe Deschanel can come along too if she wants. <laughs> yeah, sure. We'll make we a charcuterie. Throw one of her movies. It'll in. be fun. Yeah. All right. Well, the, talking about the doors and somebody getting hit leads us right into, was there any head trauma? Oh, there was. I'm going to go ahead and say there is head trauma when Cal rolled out of the car. <laughs> that poor uh, stunt right. person. There is implied head trauma with a bonus Wilhelm scream. Oh, <gasps> I totally missed it. When Jacob throws the New Balances over the railing at the mall. And there's a Wilhelm scream? Yeah. Uh-uh. Is yeah. it? Really? Yeah. That's one of my notes. Oh, I remember wow. that. Yeah. Wow. And then I, I didn't make specific notes, but there's a bunch of punching to the head in the end act two. Lynn Hagen and the babysitter's dad and Cal and Jacob, everybody's throwing some punches there. Mm-hmm. So there was also some off-screen possible trauma okay. to Ryan Gosling's head because oh. the very first time that he went to lift up Emma Stone oh, yes. into the air, <laughs> he described it as, <laughs> uh, it was like a possum fell out of the tree and tried to scratch your eyes out. <laughs> And apparently when Emma was seven years old, she fell off the high bars in gymnastics and broke both of her arms and had repressed the memory of that until she was up over Ryan. Airborne. Yes. And so she had pretty much a panic attack. And afterwards, she ran away and went into her trailer. And to calm down, she watched the movie Labyrinth. Oh, interesting choice. (laughs) And... Could not come down. So after about an hour, they uh, they ended up using a body double for her lift. But in the film, you will hear the actual scream of the first lift nice. as Emma's scream. Well played. <laughs> so I, I don't it doesn't sound like Ryan's head made it out. Unscathed? Yeah. I'm OK with that. OK. How about a smoochie? Smoochie, smoochie, smoochie. Well, there were several smoochies. The first smoochie, which I think is noteworthy. Is Richard, played by Josh Groban, gives Hannah just the most chaste little peck at 2340. And and they were talking about, with her friend Liz, about possible proposal. Not even remotely true. Speaking of the lift, there is some smooching when uh, they do the horizontal mambo. And and then uh, later in the film, I don't didn't make note of it, but I do believe that Cal and Emily smooch. And then Jessica gives Robbie a smooch on the cheek at the very end. Yes. Yeah, that is true. Also a chaste cheek smoochie, as well as one or more naked photographs, which is <laughs> probably the world's best babysitter. <laughs> exactly. How about a driving review? Well, well um, we, uh, there's a 2009 Volvo XC90 estate wagon, which is the equivalent of New Balance shoes in the automotive <laughs> world, right? It's safe, it's comfortable, but it's kind of boring. 
<laughs> and of course, wait till the car is close to grass before bailing out. <laughs> like I recommend a, a right turn as she made that corner, you'd be closer to the grass. You could maybe make a lawn. She wouldn't stop talking. <laughs> That's true. But what I didn't understand, though, was Jacob redoes all of Cal's image, but he doesn't have him replace that 97 Legacy Outback. That seems that would be key to picking up the chicks. But I, they did make a comment about money being an issue. Oh, sure. Well, I don't know how he can afford all those clothes either. And, well, he, he used a credit card, but that you can't buy a car, or at least a, a car much <laughs> yeah, better, much than, better the than 97 yeah. Legacy Outback. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and again, I may be tipping my hand because I do not believe I have had a heterosexual woman ever stop and look at, admire my vehicle. Right. So maybe, maybe that doesn't matter. And lastly, I would say if you are going to run a red light, look both ways. Try to time it right. Oh, I, I feel like we should just not run a red light. Probably shouldn't. Yeah. Okay. But if you're gonna. Okay. Look both ways. Yeah. All right. There's your public service announcement. Should we go to the numbers? Let's go to the numbers. Okay. This film, like I said, that came out in 2011, had a budget of $50 million. Ooh. And it did quite well. Domestically, it made $84.3 million. And worldwide, it made $146.5 million, which is almost three times the initial investment. So even with marketing, that's a win. And adjusted for inflation today, the domestic take of $84 million would be like $97.5 million now. It scored 7.4 out of 10 on IMDb. Critics gave it a 79% and audiences agreed with a 78% on Rotten Tomatoes. It runs just under two hours at one hour, 58 minutes. It's rated PG-13. It's labeled as a comedy, drama, and romance. It is put out by Carousel Productions. It was filmed in and around the L.A. area, Glendale, Van Nuys, Pasadena, Tarzana, Beverly Hills, Woodland Hills. Um, lots of hills down there. <laughs> Actually, not so much, but that's why they're in every name. When they have one, they just got to put it in there. <laughs> I see. And Emma won Outstanding Casting in a Big Budget Feature during the Teen Choice Awards in a comedy. So that was its big award win. Like I said, we watched this on Amazon for $3.99. Or if you choose that day, you can earn some credits back and watch it for free. That just about does it, everybody, for this episode of the Dodge Movie Podcast. Remember to get your guesses in for the theme of the month. You can look at our social media for some clues. Uh, look at the four films that we chose and see if you can pick out a theme. We tried to give you an easy one this month, so I expect lots of guesses so we can have some more winners. But never forget, Dodges never stop and neither do the movies. Thanks for listening to Dodge Movie Podcast with Christy and Mike Dodge of Dodge Media Productions. To find out more about this podcast and what we do, go to dodgemediaproductions.com. Subscribe, share, leave a comment, and tell us what we should watch next. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies. 